regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form conversation with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of their careers. My guest today is Taivo Pungas. Taivo is a tech entrepreneur working on a Stellmore startup. Previously, he built the AI team at Verif from scratch to more than 20 people and contributed in various ML and data roles at Starship Technologies and other Estonian startups. On the side, he advised startups and writes a blog at taivo.ai. So Taivo, welcome to the show. Great to be here. So I want to start our conversation by discussing a little bit about your upbringing in Estonia. While researching your profile, I found your blog post written in Estonian, where you argue that a lecture format is the biggest failure of the Estonian educational system. Can you share briefly about your experience going through the Estonian K-12 system and your argument in that post? Yeah, I really disliked school and authority, and this is only something I realized in hindsight. I went to some of the top schools in Estonia, so I went to a different school in middle school and in, um, in high school. Both were in, in probably the top five or ten schools in Estonia, which means it, it wasn't about the school being, you know, a low quality or anything. But for some reason, I felt pretty bored. The pace was either too slow or maybe in some time or in some cases too fast, which meant I wasn't really engaged. And all of this together meant that most of my time in class actually uh, was spent misbehaving and actually disturbing other students. And, you know, that really isn't productive for anyone. So my analysis of what the problem was, and obviously other than, you know, me kind of not being able to just sit still very well, I think the problem is uh, to a large extent, the format of school. And one part of it is that I, I haven't gone to school elsewhere in the world, but I think this is pretty common that classes are lectures. So you might as well have like a 45 minute YouTube video playing to the students and maybe a small amount of interaction but it's been pretty thoroughly shown that a lecture is not the great way to teach, especially if the students are passively listening. You know, to learn, you have to do a lot of work to actually understand the material. And for me, I've always found it much easier to, to do it more individually. And if you look at the statistics, this is also something I did too. You know, I have my personal experience as an anecdote, but the statistics say that even though Estonia has some of the highest scores in the PISA test, which is like an international standardized education achievement test, even though we score very highly on the academic performance, we score pretty low on student happiness. And you might guess that this is a trade-off. You have to put a lot of work in to be a good student, and maybe maybe you can't be happy that way. But this is not true. Uh, Singapore, Switzerland, Japan, several other countries are actually have both score high on both axes. So um, I kind of pitched an idea that maybe we shouldn't do the kind of schooling that we invented it's 100, 200 years ago when school was basically like meant to take kids away from parents' hands so they could work and rearrange it according to the best of the knowledge we have today, which would mean something like 
more personalized curricula, more one-on-one interaction uh, with teachers. There's absolutely no point in having lectures in person because you already have, you could have like one of the best teachers in the world. They record all the lectures and everyone else uses those. Or you could have a couple with different angles. So I think in general, there's just so much low-hanging fruit that I was kind of frustrated that school is not better organized. I'm not sure if, if it's going to get better, though. Did, did you see that COVID kind of change that educational paradigm significantly? Because right now, a lot of like school over the world is doing remote learning. Do you think this kind of support your hypothesis? I don't have children, so I haven't seen it up close, but I'm kind of... It's obviously it's horrible that the kids are out of school because they're falling behind and and parents can't work, so it's it's pretty bad. But I think one of the upsides is parents realized that the category in which K-12 schooling is, it's not education, it's babysitting. Like the obvious alternative, the thing they have to pay for or the problem they have to solve when kids can't go to school is they have to find a babysitter. And I think this experience and on a, you know, like globally, everyone basically had their kids home at some point, probably this experience might kick us out of this like old system that people will hopefully start considering new things. That's my hope. Yeah, thanks for sharing those very interesting uh, opinions. You did your bachelor degree in computer science at the University of Tattoo. And in particular, you conduct some research on biologically realistic neuron models at the Computational Neuroscience Lab. Can you describe your overall undergrad experience? I'd say that I took on a huge amount of things. So in the first year, I did something like 1.6 times the normal course load. In addition to that, I did a lot of extracurriculars from supporting or helping organize high school students' uh, Olympiads and up to like organizing the student parties for the computer science department. So I I did a very wide range of things. And I I think I kind of maximized my, uh, let's say, the use of my time. I didn't sleep very well, which, uh, you know, you might imagine if you want to get more hours after the day. From the research side, the thesis topic you mentioned, I was really lucky to actually stumble in a research group with a really good professor, Raul Vicente, and some great colleagues, PhD students, who together we, like, first of all, it was fun, but the professor spent a near rational amount of time on like educating me, uh, a young bachelor student. I'm really grateful for that. And um, what's more, this was the early days of neural networks, so uh, 2013. And the DeepMind DQN paper, the Atari playing network, it had just come out. And one of the PhD students in the lab kind of pushed us towards working on or trying to replicate this paper, which turned out to be extremely hard. We actually didn't manage it. So this was uh, the time where, you know, you had to build things in Tiano. And uh, I think that was probably part of the reason I got into machine learning a -hmm. couple of months or years later. I see. So this is, this research experiment allowed you to kind of get exposed to that that beginning phase of machine learning, focus more on that in your career, right? Actually, like when I did more some research on profile, I I know this is also okay, but TED Talk called Why Data Science, I think towards the end of your undergrad. Is that something you have to from your like, interest in machine learning, I suppose? Yeah, there was, I think this was, there was like a half year period in which I, so one thing was reproducing the DeepMind Atari project, but I also spoke to some people based in, in Bay Area and Australia who were kind of early, I would say, into the data science scene and, and deep learning. So that also encouraged me to, to think about it more, to do more courses, to try to build my own projects you know, visualizing data, doing very simple things. So I was pretty 
taken with the whole direction of data science and I, I promoted it as much as I could also on my Estonian language blog at the time. Perfect, yeah. And uh, during college, you also spent some time interning at Skype and uh, TransferWise. What are some of the projects that you contributed to during this work experience? So at Skype, I, I worked in the fraud prevention team, operational fraud prevention team. I wouldn't even say that I contributed that much to a particular project. Most of my value, I think, was in providing ad hoc analysis. Uh, we did try to replace a particular part of the fraud engine, fraud being their credit card fraud, so paying with a stolen credit card and then kind of laundering the money. We tried to replace it, the existing system, which was based on manual rules and uh, lots of like manually tuned magic numbers. And, you know, I guess you could call them parameters. Uh, we tried to replace it with an end-to-end learn model. We didn't really succeed. It was so much worse than the manually tuned one that we, we never really did replace it. Later at TransferWise, which is now changed their name to WISE, I worked on the conversion team, which is responsible for basically making sure that the people who come into the site get to their first transaction successfully. It was a very simple thing that I did. We had the most impact. The product manager had been hand copying numbers from like one, from some website to a Google sheet. And I automated this data loading process. And then after I finished it, we had like instantly visibility at over all of the history that analytics had been available plus different kinds of slicing uh, available. Yeah, and, and I didn't really set out to do that. I was just like the product manager after I joined, the PM told me that now it's my job to copy the numbers. I was like, I'm not going to copy a bunch of numbers like for four hours every week manually. So I automated it and there was like pretty nice side product of more visibility. Yeah, that's a very interesting anecdote. Up to college, you pursue a master's degree in computer science at ETH Zurich. And there you work on a thesis called Uncertainty-Based Active Imitation Learning at the Learning and Adaptive System Group. So could you mind going over some of the, first of all, the, some of the relevant coursework, and then second of all, uh, just this research experience during your time at ETH? So some of the courses that I remember best, I'll, I'll go through a couple of them. One was Professor Andreas Krause's uh, large-scale machine learning course. He was uh, in his lab. I eventually did my thesis as well. Why I, re- I remember that particular course was, first of all, it was really well presented, but also it took relatively simple algorithms and then presented ways to make these applicable to really large data sets, which was something I hadn't really seen anywhere. So for example, that's where I learned about locality sensitive hashing. And that's, you know, I've used this trick of using Spotify Annoy's library that implements this. It's really useful. It's been really useful uh, in the rest of my career. So another course was based on uh, matrix factorization and the different kinds of analysis you can do based on that. That again was pretty useful because I guess if the matrix factorization methods kind of force you to understand the latent structure in the data, or that's kind of what they're meant to do. Then there was the course called machine learning. The focus was basically statistical machine learning. It was the most popular course that I ever took. At the peak, I think it was like 800 people. We had two lecture halls. This was back in 2015. Uh, it was pretty hard because the professor was kind of a like an old school machine learning person doing things mathematically relatively rigorously and, you know, probably wasn't that much into neural networks. Uh, then I did a course, which I really liked on multimedia processing, which was about how image and audio data is structured, encoded, compressed, 
and in, in a relatively high level way, but understanding how JPEG encoding works is pretty interesting. And it's been useful to see the principles that are common between, for example, JPEG encoding and matrix factorization. So, you know, basically you have basis vectors and you have simply different methods of creating or structuring these basis vectors. And well, this is actually, this is not original, of course, but in the sense of learning the structure in a data set and compression are very closely related. So uh, this was interesting. I, I kind of accidentally t- took this course. It looked easy. So that's why I took it, uh, <laughs> ended up being pretty nice. One whole semester, I think for like 80% of one semester I spent on a practical course, which was mandatory. It was about creating and analyzing a queuing system. So kind of a messaging queue middleware, a simple version of that. It was really hard at the time and I kind of hated that, that I had it, had to do it. It seemed pretty unnecessary, but at Starship later, I used a lot of the knowledge I got there. So I'm actually happy I did that. And uh, my thesis, it was a pretty basic idea. Like in human words or in, in plain English, I would say it's when you're trying to learn something from a teacher, you should have them show you the things that you're most uncertain about. Like this was the intuition and and it's super simple. It's it's really logical. And I did some very simplistic experiments to see whether it might give you a benefit over just having a teacher show you something that the teacher is expects is is valuable. Uh, One thing I learned through doing the thesis research and then writing it up was that I'm really not suited to academic work. It's really difficult for me to motivate myself to do something where the tangible value is on such a long time horizon, where the work is so uncertain. It's just, I think it's, you know, somehow my dopamine system is incompatible with academia. That taught me that I probably have to stay away from, you know, doing a PhD or very research-oriented projects. Yeah, thanks for sharing those experiences. Yeah, I recently just got finished my master's thesis not too long ago, so that we can resonate with a lot of what you said. It's just curious in terms of Zurich as an institution itself, as opposed to move from Estonia to Switzerland for a study here. Like overall, how about the um, academic environment, job peers, the, the whole university? What would you lie about it? And uh, is it mostly like Europeans or, or mostly like in a specific demographics? Yeah. I don't actually know. The course was pretty big. It was, I think, 200 people entered the computer science masters that year. Most of the people that I hung out with were kind of like the Eastern European mafia or, you know, like be from Estonia, uh, a friend from Romania, a couple from Slovakia, Czech Republic, some Greek people, an Austrian. So kind of like, not, not quite Eastern Europe, but, you know, the Eastern side, let's say, of, of Europe. I think there was still a majority of, um, of Swiss people. I'm not sure if uh, admissions somehow are easier for them or I don't even know why. But one thing that kind of struck me about the environment was I came from Estonia or University of Tartu where I would say it wasn't really challenging for me to get perfect grades in every class or get an A in every class. Over my whole bachelor's, I only got one B. Everything else was an A. That was like by, you know, like 0.4% margin. And it, it was like, one of the most difficult courses I, I took as well uh, on tensor mathematics for mathematical physics. Anyway, so based on that experience, I kind of saw myself as easily able to learn almost anything. And then I went to uh, Switzerland and the ex- expected amount of learning per credit was so much higher. And I'm not sure if anyone has ever done that. Probably some, some crazy people have, but getting maximum grades in all courses that you take, like it seemed impossible. I just aimed for like the grade that was halfway between 
like the maximum and failing. And I said to myself, like, if I manage that on average, I'll be happy. And uh, I, I did manage that. So the expectations are much higher. And another thing I actually got from the environment as opposed to simply the courses is I went there with an imposter syndrome. And when I saw the people I was taking the same courses with, you know, people who had interned at like Google, Twitter and Facebook, or, you know, like just have their CV full of these word class names. It was pretty intimidating. But then I realized they taking these courses, I realized that they're not like mountains above me. Uh, we we're roughly on the same level. And this really encouraged me later to kind of see that what perhaps word class isn't uh, that level, maybe word class is, is much higher, but at least I, I kind of got some reinforcement to my confidence. Thanks for sharing that. I think that part about overcoming imposter syndrome is so important. It's like that's that the part when, when you're like leaping from one end of the learning curve to that open mindset where you accept your shortcomings and be willing to learn. And, and so I think that's raising a lot of listeners who you know might be either uh, new to the field or might be challenging for them to enter like a, a field with so much uncertainty. And so I think it's, it's quite refreshing to hear you sharing that experience and showing that you have to go that through yourself as well. After grad school, you joined Starship Technologies as a perception engineer. There, you contributed to various projects such as depth camera-based object detection, ETA prediction, and uh, matter life prediction. Can you discuss some of the unique engineering challenges associated with building autonomous robots? Probably the background most uh, listeners will have is they have heard something about self-driving cars. Self-driving cars are versus the small sidewalk delivery robots that we were building. The main difference is that Whereas a self-driving car costs something like, together with the sensors and everything, it would cost something like a couple of hundred thousand at least in dollars or euros. The robot is built out of commodity hardware and it has to be really, really cheap because the goal was to make delivery really accessible. And what that means is the compute on the robot, you can think of it as like like a low-end smartphone from 2014. And... You can't really run almost any fancy algorithm on that. Uh, you could barely run neural networks. This was my first project when I joined Starship. Uh, there was this uh, neural network accelerator, which we wanted to try integrating into the robot to see if we could you know, run our neural networks at the higher frame rate or run bigger neural networks. So this was actually the course I mentioned before, which I disliked at ETH Zurich. The problem was not really a machine learning problem. It was like piping images at the high throughput and low latency from one chip to another and back. And the target latency was, you know, not like super low, not like in a couple milliseconds, but definitely sub-second. And the lower we could go, the better it was. So I wanted to minimize the latency while at the same time having, you know, pushing through images uh, between the chips. And I set up this, basically rig one robot to instrument how quickly the images were moving from main compute or the main chip to the uh, additional chip or the accelerator chip. And back, I instrumented all the different parts of it. I measured the timing and the throughputs. I measure it uh, and I did like, you know, for every experiment, I did like 10,000 repetitions of that. And through this, what you could call empirical engineering, uh, you know, just like looking at the stats and seeing whether uh, which part of the pipeline you have to optimize because it's not working. I was able to eventually build something that worked reasonably fast all the while there was a much more senior engineer who I maybe should have listened. He told me to do it, like use a different kind of solution. And I was like, no, like here, here are the stats, it's fast enough. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of proud of that. And the other interesting project where I might have had some uh, impact was 
So you, the robot has depth cameras, and the goal is to detect objects to not drive into them, so obstacle detection. And the rate of information you get in is something like a million points per second, each point having like a 3D coordinates. So taking into account that the compute, like I said, is low-end smartphone from 2014, and like the amount of compute I could roughly allocate on my algorithm or on processing that particular part of the sensor input was something like 1% of one core of that. You know, I implemented some naive algorithm to figure out where the obstacles might be. And I realized after extensive debugging and profiling, I realized that even calculating the angle of the point from the attitude of the robot was too slow. So I couldn't even calculate the angle for every point. And that was kind of um, an interesting challenge. So what I ended up doing, I dropped the arctangent function that was built into the C++ library, and I used some approximation for that, which, you know, it, actually it's pretty standard because you save a lot of floating point operations. But uh, for me, that was new. So I was able to make it work fast enough. And the other two projects, uh, which you mentioned, they were not really on the robot driving or self-driving side, they were on the side of managing the fleet and operating the robot themselves, which I think were like less technically difficult. Yeah, thanks for sharing those concrete engineering case studies. While Starship, you and uh, some of the other colleagues create the data specification manifesto. So this manifesto crafts the three principles for iteratively solving complex problems. Number one is to focus on solving specific cases to the problem. Number two is to address a proportion of the easiest cases and repeat the process multiple times. And number three is to curate a collection of good problem cases. So what was the motivation behind writing this manifesto? And do you unpacking a little bit these three principles? My manager at Starship, who was the person who actually I worked with during my bachelor's in the same lab, the PhD student who initiated the DeepMind rep- replication project, he was kind of the driver, or I think he was had implemented this philosophy at Starship self-driving. The idea is that, let me simplify the Starship problem. So you have a robot and the only hard part is crossing the road. When you cross the road, these are the most dangerous times in the drives. You need to figure out whether a car is coming or not. So you have a kind of a binary classification problem. Is a car coming or not? Or is it safe to cross or not? And you could imagine that you approach this in a, like an analytical way. You look at a bunch of crossings, you try to figure out like some of the major patterns. Sometimes cars are coming from left, let's try to look for cars from left. Sometimes cars are coming from the right, let's also look for cars from the right. Sometimes the cars are not visible or they are occluded by a bush or something. Let's look at the radar image. So you could kind of, you could try to abstract the problems. But if you do that, you lose detail. And the opposite of that, or a different approach, is that you curate a good collection of examples which you then intend to solve. And this is really common in machine learning. Like, this is what we do. We create a training data set, we create an evaluation data set, maybe that we do some partitioning. But basically, we have a bunch of examples which we are trying to create the program to solve. And whether we learn that program, or whether we learn all of the parameters, or we learn only some of the parameters, we always evaluate ourselves directly on the data. It turns out this is not really very common. So if you look at classical software engineering, this is not really how you do things. When you write tests, you might write out typical scenarios as kind of unit tests, and then you try to solve these unit tests uh, in test-driven development. When you take the approach of looking at the data points directly and trying to solve them directly, instead of any abstraction layer in between, you have a really good loop 
where you write some code, you evaluate whether it actually solved these examples, you write some code again, evaluate again, and you kind of have this really good empirical loop of solving the problem. Even though the problem might be extremely difficult, you might be like a thousand X away from the target metric that, that you're looking for. It turns out that this sort of approach is applicable elsewhere as well, because another example which we didn't do at Starship, which I think is really applicable. If you look at the employee happiness, so you you run some survey, you ask every employee in a company, like, what are your problems? What do you not like? And if you have this step where you abstract the answers, you try to somehow sum them up in like five or six main top level problems that people have, you probably always end up with a roughly similar set of things. People will complain about communication, People will say that they don't earn enough, etc. And these are kind of unactionable. Like if you have this high level thing, communication is bad in your company. That's true for every company, but like who needs to know what information? And this is in contrast with, you know, example based approach where if you look at person X and person Y and Z and Q, so you list all of the people and you evaluate the particular solution against all of these people. So what if we create the new Slack channel for, you know, particular information? Will this solve, let's say, at least half of these people's problems? And I think it's fundamentally for some problems. So for problems where there's like a long tail of complexity, like there is usually in machine learning. And I think like there also is in, you know, employees problems at work, this sort of uh, directly against examples data spec approach is really available. Well, you wrote this manifesto, I believe back in 2018. Do you think it's still relevant three years later? Yeah, I think it's. It's definitely not less relevant, so it's pretty timeless, I think. The more we have this hybrid software between, you know, we, you don't necessarily have to have an end-to-end machinery system. Uh, if you have some classical parts of it, it's actually more valuable because if you're doing end-to-end, then it's obvious that you will have like, you know, like what you have in your training set will determine the program that is learned from the training set via neural network. But if you also have some classical pieces of code, some post-processing, some pre-processing, it might be easier to use the data spec approach. And actually, it's not that even limited in technical problems. It's not even limited to software. You could also, in the robot case, you could evaluate whether a new sensor would help you solve a bunch of particular cases. Like I mentioned, the car coming from behind the bush, you might not be able to solve it at all if you don't have radar. So radar uh, is one potential solution you can evaluate. Or in another case, if you drive on a particular campus, let's say a university campus, and there's one road where you always have to stop because there's some shrubbery on the road and they're kind of stopping you from moving, you might just cut off the leaf or you know, you might ask the management of the university to cut that off and that might solve the problem. You don't really necessarily need to solve it in a over-engineered you might have a very simple solution to that. So if you only look at it narrowly, as opposed to lots of examples, you will miss creative and uh, simple solutions potentially. That actually lands up very well to my next question. In 2018, you moved to Verip, which is a startup that develops an identity verification platform, initially in an automation deep role. So you gave a talk at the Zen of Data Team Meetup in April 2019 called The Two Loops of Building Our Automic Products from your experience there. And more specifically, you kind of brought up a little bit in the previous answers, but there are two loops, which is an algorithm development loop and, and the product development loop. Then in that talk, you also explain how these two loops work together. And um, you also recognize some of the, the harder parts, of specifically the data annotation component and the testing infrastructure component. 
So can you unpack some of the key components of the two loops and some of those components that are very still hard to, to do with? The origin of that talk was quite related to the data spec idea. The thing I mentioned when building up the AI team at Verif was that most of our problems actually surrounded data. We were quite easily able to solve, let's say, the problems of building a microservice or deploying our models. It wasn't that difficult to find the standard neural network architecture on which to train, but the hardest part was making sure that we have good data sets available in a timely way. What's more, they have to describe what you expect the model to do really well. The talk I gave was, it was an experiment around the idea of organizing the loops around data. And Andrei Karpati, the director of AI at Tesla, he introduced this concept of software 2.0. So that is basically end-to-end learned systems from data. And this is co- in contrast to software 1.0, where you hand code things, classical software. In software 2.0, you still also have source code. You still have Python you know, that you use to train your model. But the concept of source code as the thing that defines the behavior of your system, it is data. It is not the code that trains the model. And if you think about it this way, it makes a huge amount of sense to focus much more on the data, not on the part where you train the model. And the code that trains the model, I would consider it like a compiler. So when you're writing a C++ program, you don't really normally spend 80% of your effort on optimizing the compiler flags. Like it's unusual. This is not what you normally want to do. And somehow in machine learning, or especially in deep learning, people tend to focus on like, let me find the best model. Let me get like 0.5% better improvement by like completely revamping the architecture, which I think is stupid. In some cases, it might be justified if you have really, really good data sets. And, you know, that's all you, all you need to do is like improve percentage points in the model performance. And if it's super valuable for you and, you know, you've exhausted all other opportunities from working with data, maybe that makes sense. Or if you're on the super cutting edge, like most self-driving companies are, like they probably also invest a lot in data, both in data and models. But in most cases, if you're doing something relatively standard, like let's say image classification or object detection in images, you know, like you can find tons of implemented architectures on GitHub or in the standard neural network libraries. You don't really need to put effort into making your, or rolling your own architecture. It just doesn't make sense. You're unlikely to find a better one than people have published before. So what you need to do is put your effort into making a really good data set. And somehow, like I realized this too late. I'm also guilty of that myself. But when I did, I started thinking about it in the way of how do we in the process of deploying a new model, observing the results, having some humans review the results, how do we use these loops, these development loops to improve the data set? So in software 1.0, you you know you release some software, you find bugs, you change the source code. Similarly, in software 2.0, you release the software, you find some new cases, you add them to your data set, or you find bugs in your data set, you change that. So uh, we can go deeper into that later, but there are things you can do to focus on explicitly on making better data sets mm-hmm. and building your process around building a data engine. That's basically what it's called. And that's how Tesla calls it is 
like the machine that produces really good data sets so that you can build good software 2.0. Yeah, absolutely. And we will definitely talk about some of those challenges of building good data sets uh, later on when we discuss a bit about some of your blog posts. But uh, before that, let's dig deeper into some of your work at, at Barrett. You gave another talk. This one is for developing automation heavy products at 2019 Nox.ai event, where I shared a couple of interesting tips, which include defining the unit of automation, staying algorithm agnostic, and uh, building a final decision maker. So could you mind kind of going over a case study of uh, how the automation team at Verif applied these tips? So the context at Verif is a product in a very simplified way is it's an API where you send a picture of your driver's license and you get back response containing a binary decision about whether it is okay or not, it's whether it looks fraudulent or not, and lots of data that has been extracted from the driver's license, your name, your date of birth, et cetera. And banks or fintech companies might use that information to verify your identity, which they are legally obligated to do. So you might already see that this is kind of the perfect supervised learning problem. So when I show my driver's license or I take a picture of my driver's license and someone else does, these are completely independent examples, which makes it really easy to develop. There's no time dimension. For example, when building a self-driving robot or, or car, you have to reason over time dynamically. But we had this perfect, like, you know, here's a completely independent image, find the correct answer. And humans can give ground truth labels, which makes it even easier. So the context is that we have to reduce the amount of human work that goes into processing these documents. So let's say in one extreme, every image that comes in a human has to make all the decisions about it. And on the other extreme, every time all the decisions are uh, done automatically. It was kind of like a pure case study, I guess, of automation. Tip one was defining the unit of automation. So you have to figure out what is the appropriate level at which you, you automate. So in the identity verification case, you actually don't just get one image, you get images of the front side and back side and the, and the person's face, typically. and like a natural unit is this combination of three images. For example, if you make a decision about two of the images and have the human look at one of these three, they still have to spend not like one third of the time they would have otherwise, but more like one half or two thirds. So the saving is not that much. The biggest benefit from AI there or from automation there comes if you automate the whole decision, if a human never has to see Taiwa's documents because all of them were processed automatically. So uh, this unit of automation might be obvious, but um, there might be different options and uh, you might have to choose between those. Staying algorithm agnostic, that's pretty uh, like relatively straightforward, I think. You might have this tendency of going for a fancier algorithm or going for a neural network, whereas something really simple might suffice. Like instead of building a neural network that tells you what kind of document it is, you might just like OCR it with a standard OCR library and look for like the text Estonia on it or Latvia to figure out what country it is. It wouldn't be accurate enough, but it would give you like a decent baseline possibly. And it's probably like, you know, 100x faster to implement. And uh, building a final decision maker, the problem you might run into is if you develop a distributed decision-making system, so you have like several aspects of the decision that you have to make, you know, is it fraudulent in a particular way? Is it is the person trying to show it from screen? Are they trying to show a printout? You have to, at some point, you have to have this like aggregation point 
if you don't think about it beforehand, you might have like a hacky aggregation race conditions. So you might have a scenario where you get race conditions if you have two algorithms running in parallel, one faster than the other, and it might become a huge mess, especially in engineering wise, even if not, you know, in terms of machine learning. I see, yeah, resolving conflict between two competing engineering solutions. And if you put also a human into the loop, a human might be part of your end-to-end decision-making, then you have like two algorithms in parallel and also a human involved. So you somehow have to unify all of these decisions into one single final decision. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, I'll be sure to include a link to the top and show notes so listeners can watch it. I think it's a very, very clear and to the point representation of what we just discussed. In the later part of your channel with Barrett, you assume product management responsibilities, leading the go-to-market strategy, establishing communication between the product and sales division, and also building out a unique data ops team that creates good data sets. So what were some of the valuable leadership and hiring lessons that you absorbed during this period? One thing was related to the data set building process. So how do you there's no handbook, there's no playbook on how to build good data sets or how to build an organization that is able to produce really good data sets that are large enough for training, that are appropriately sampled, that work for different kinds of problems. It just doesn't exist. So I built this team called DataOps. The term is actually used in a different way. It's overloaded, but it was the best I could find. The team was basically a combination of people who were at the same time, a single person was a domain expert of documents, a data labeler and the project manager. So it's a weird combination, but the idea was that if you have a person in-house as part of the team working directly with a data scientist, the loop of improving data sets is much faster as opposed to you know having a team in, in a silo where you send a request for a data set and receive it in a week or something. So. I think this worked out well. And even though it created a lot of chaos because, you know, having like 10 data ops specialists work with like five data scientists in almost any combination, I think it was worth it. And I I did like the model. The contrast is, you know, you might also have a completely separate team or even outsource the labeling. So that, that was a new experience for me building this kind of team. Second thing was... So Verif is an enterprise B2B company. Uh, Most of the revenue comes from uh, large deals. And in these cases, or in these sorts of companies, there's natural friction between sales and product uh, organizations. And this is like a stereotypical representation of it. The salesman is incentivized to sell a really big deal. It doesn't matter what we have to do, what the company has to do to deliver at whatever cost we'll close the deal. And it might mean, you know, building something particular for the, that client, which is like 20% off our core product, which is maybe not something that we want to build. And on the other hand, the product people are like, and this includes me, uh, are like purists who have in their mind, like this strategy that we want to execute, the product that we want to build, the, the market that we want to capture. And you always want to say no to the salespeople. Like your first answer is no. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how reasonable their, their request is. So there's this like built-in tension and uh, it's, I've heard from others, it's also, it's really common to have this like, uh, kind of like, not even love, hate, like this uh, really high friction relationship between product and sales teams. And we definitely did have that at Tarif as well. Uh, at least one thing which I think was a good contribution of mine, I got us talking. We did some shouting as well, but you know, like at least we talked. 
if you never talk, it's so much worse. If you talk, then you at least you bring the you know the difficult questions to the table. And the go-to-market, I think the main learning for me there for, was that it's difficult to change course even for a relatively small company that Verif was at the time. And especially difficult it is to make short versus long-term trade-offs. So I think this is also typical in startups and in general in companies, but how much are you willing to sacrifice revenue today to potentially have much higher growth, you know, 12 months in, 18, 18 months in, it's really difficult to convince ourselves and obviously the CEO of the management that this is something we should pursue. So um, this was a pretty interesting and uh, difficult experience for me. Yeah, absolutely. Just just picking back on, on the last part about GTM and short-term versus long-term, what, what is your thoughts on like bottom-up discovery versus like top-down sales for like B2B product at an early stage? What do you mean by bottom-up discovery? I've seen, uh, you know, people fire you and then building awareness, community base, engagement with your potential clients instead of like having like a head of sales and execute like generating leads via spreadsheet. I have seen the strategy or I've heard about the strategy working. For example, Slack, I think is a good example where you do uh, bottoms up sales. So someone in the company adopts Slack and at some point in the future, might be a year in or two years in the IT uh, department is forced to purchase it because everyone is using it already. Uh, I think that doesn't really work for Verif because the product is so much more difficult to integrate and it's not a personal tool even. Perhaps one team or one part of the company could bring it in if it's a huge company, you know, if it's like 100,000 people and like several divisions, like hundreds of teams, then that might make sense. And I think that does happen or did happen at Verif to some extent. But if the deal size is, you know, like in millions, it's unlikely to, to be a bottoms up thing. And usually if you're like the typical clients are not the kinds where, you know, they slowly start ramping up with like one verification per day, it's, the volumes are significantly higher. Mm, I see. So your job client is mostly like large organization, a mere size enough. That's why they require much more due diligence in the process. Just kind of going over that part about the resolving conflict between like product and sales or in general, just technical and technical Folks, like, uh, can you double-click on that? Like, what are some of the specific tips and strategy that you execute in order to ensure that, that trust and collaboration between these parties? Yeah, I wouldn't say that I was resolving conflict. I, w- I think I was part of creating the conflict. But, like, the point at which, or uh, the thing I did was creating more communication. So, literally, what that meant was inviting a bunch of people from the revenue side and from the product side behind the same table and talking about issues that we each of us had. And then, you know, like doing this in a recurring way on a weekly basis and then slowly mo- starting to move towards solutions. So just creating this forum for conflict even eventually paved the way to solving these conflicts. The smaller ones were kind of easy to solve, but, uh, you know, like I said, there, there's this built-in friction between the teams where on the one hand, you want to sell at any cost. On the other hand, you don't want to digress from your roadmap. Uh, I think the most obvious number one thing to do is if you don't have it already, start talking, like have a meeting, set up a recurring meeting and have both sides bring onto the table the agenda points that they find worrying about their side. It could be, you know, from the product side, it's like, okay, there's this deal, maybe we don't want to do it because it's so far away from what we normally do or it would take so much time to build or from the sales side you might have hey look like this deal is kind of getting you know stonewalled by the product 
it seems to us that it's not so far. Let's try to figure out whether we can make it happen and let's discuss like what could we offer so it makes sense for the client and for us. So just talking, I think is reasonable. Perhaps one more tip. If you can to resolve a conflict, it's ideal if you have someone who has decision-making power, you know, it might be the CEO, but at least someone who can make these trade-offs between short-term and long-term, it's also important. Yeah, absolutely. Those are very valid tips and strategy. So kind of of circling back to the technical stuff that we kind of discovered, uh, discussed a bit earlier in our chat. So let's double-click on the technical problem of building good data sets that you have been quite vocal about. So you wrote this blog post called uh, Data Loops are the Bottlenecks in Applied AI, and then it examines the challenge of speed up iterating on large batch data. And in fact, you also create a list of uh, data annotation tools on your GitHub, and you emphasize that most of these tools seem to address the box drawing part, not the whole annotation workflow. So uh, in your opinion, what are some of the key characteristics or properties of a tool that can address that whole annotation workflow? I think that the comment I made is possibly a bit outdated. It seems to me that there are two extremes. And one of these extremes is the kind of tool that I mentioned where you upload the images or you have the images in a folder and the tool mostly just helps you draw boxes and save the file somewhere, the the resulting annotation file. There are tons of these. Uh, Most of them are like either old or otherwise bad or like, you know, cost too much for the small amount they do. But that's like one end. The other end is you have this full-fledged enterprise AI platform, which does everything from like, you store your images there, you store your labels there, uh, you do the labeling, you hire the workforce, you do the quality review or quality assurance, you train the models, you serve the models, you monitor the models, uh, you run experiments. So basically like, you adopt this and it's like the full service or you, 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 you buy into Microsoft. Like you have to use everything that Microsoft offers because you're in the ecosystem. And the state of data set tools is such, it seems to me that you have basically the choice between the two ends. One, you buy like this whole platform, the other end, you take this tiny piece, which is the box drawing and then build yourself everything around it. And it's clearly bad. So as part of my own startup, which I'm working on right now, the first couple of months I was investigating, I was working on this exact problem. Like, can I build something in between? Can I build something that's better? And especially my focus was in SME. So small, medium companies, which cannot afford these large platforms and they don't have a large enough team to build everything themselves either. How do they manage? And the answer is basically like they have no solution. They either buy one of the platforms which offers some sort of uh, like low end tier or they use a community edition, or you know they roll everything themselves. They write all the software themselves, uh, or they just suffer. They don't work on data sets as much as they would want to. And for me, the clearest analogy is I would expect there to be, and I hope there in the long term there is, a vibrant ecosystem of tools that are interoperable, which exists in software 1.0. I store my, my source code, my, like my Python source, my C source. I store it in a text file. I put it in a Git repo. I store it on GitHub or GitLab. Under these assumptions, there's millions of tools that work out of the box under these assumptions. Like you, you just can use them without any configuration, whether it's like linting the code or deployment, etc. This is not really true for datasets. Every time you want to use a new tool, you're like, okay, so 
do I have to upload my data into the tool or can they reference it in my like Amazon S3 bucket? Do I have to spin up my own database instance for that? Is it like somewhere on the cloud in a proprietary storage? Uh, there was a good blog post about this from a Google PM like a year or two ago, which the main point was there is no dominant design in the machinery space or in the machinery tool space at least. And this means that no piece is interoperable and that makes it so painful. So you have the two choices, go for a platform or go for almost nothing and build everything yourself. So that's my, um, I, I guess my rant on what the state is today. The key properties I would say is you don't even want the single tool. It would feel super weird if you're building, let's say a, a startup with classic software, you're building a web application. If you had to upload your source code to your hosting provider, you have to use their IDE, you have to use their testing library. Like it just doesn't make sense. Uh, you have this all these different tools, these specialized tools, and you're not locked into a particular vendor. You can switch from AWS to Google Cloud relatively easily, at least if, if you're using Kubernetes. So in my ideal world, like the functionality could be exactly the same as it is today, mm-hmm. but I would love to see a choice between different libraries, interoperable libraries and tools, which help you build up your own custom stack, whatever you're doing, whatever your company is. So this is my pipe dream. Yeah, I see that interoperability for the clients to customize the tools to their own needs and their own model specific use cases, right? Uh, just kind of continuing that thread as as we discuss the topic and another proposal you wrote, your AI team is DataOps and basically you talk about the DataOps team that you build there and you argue at the end, you basically proclaim at the end of the post that DataOps as a discipline is, is in its very early stage and barely acknowledged as distinct from data science. So given your first and experience barrier right now, working on your own startup and being advisors to many other startups, you know, how has that ops traditionally been done in small and large AI enterprise? And how do you see the evolution of this data ops discipline in the next one or two years? Let me quickly define the field of data ops. So it's a function whose main purpose, main mission is to build good data sets. And obviously you can unpack good to mean, you know, like large enough, high quality enough, et cetera, but it's their main goal, build good data sets. If you look at how it's done today or whose responsibility it is today, it's typically the data scientists themselves. The same person is responsible for sampling the data, figuring out or talking to product people and whoever the stakeholders are in the company to figure out what the labeling guidelines should be, the policy like building the infrastructure or building the ETL between all of the different tools because they're not interoperable. You need to put effort into that, writing your training code, uh, running experiment on when you train your models. In some cases, deploying also the models themselves, writing microservices around it. There's this huge range of things that the data scientist has to do, especially if they're in a small company. And it's obvious that almost no one is really good at or even capable of all of these at the high enough level of quality. So the typical solution today is, like I said, either have a data scientist do it or in some cases outsource it to a company as a whole, which I think is kind of a bad idea. Like it might work if you have a really simple task, but it's a business critical thing. If the model is a business critical component in your business, then like the data set, which is the source code of the model is even more important. So you really want to put a lot of effort into making sure it is, uh, it's a really good data set. Another approach I have seen is trying to hire students or like really low qualified, 
unqualified labor to label. And the problem with that, or like, I think in the same category, it's like using Amazon Mechanical Turk to, to label. It might seem like a good idea on, on first glance, but it's only okay. It's only simple. It only makes sense if the task is really, really simple. And in this case, you probably don't need machine learning anyway. For example, like the typical example I use is if you're trying to do object detection on cats, like a trivial example, you know, like five years ago. But if you look at the data set, you might have these edge cases. You know, if you have an obvious cat in the center of the frame, that's okay. Like that's not difficult. And everyone can draw the box relatively well. But if you have, a, and I have a, like a slideshow about this, I, I'm describing these images, a cat that is reflected off of a mirror or some water on the on the ground, then is the reflection also a cat? Like, should you label it as a cat? Or if the cat is partly occluded, they are, let's say they're sitting in a box and their head is peeking out. How should you annotate it? Should you try to infer where the cat actually is? Or if you see a toy, like a realistic toy of a cat, then why do you label that? Like, is it a cat? So all of these questions, they are not really technical questions. They're product questions, they're business questions. And you, you should, bring this to your product organization, to your whoever is responsible for the business outcome. And that's why like, I don't think outsourcing is a great idea. At least what I've seen in some companies that started out outsourcing, they brought it more in-house for the reasons I mentioned. But also if you have in-house operations, you might have like spare capacity of domain experts where you know you might want to use them to label. You might have cost constraints. So maybe it's easier, cheaper for you to hire in-house people. You might have data, data privacy concerns, which we definitely had that brief, which is why we didn't outsource. So there are all these reasons to keep it in-house. And in my opinion, like I think we're moving more towards that. It's a, it's a bold prediction probably, but uh, like I, I think so. I don't think that example of cat detection, I think I will watch from the top and you, when you mentioned that, so I'll be sure you include that in the show notes as well. Kind of the last blog post I will discuss in a conversation, the most recent one is called Datasets, Cuff, the Terrain of AI, and it explores two critical paths of building a dataset. Number one is sampling and number two is labeling. So can you uh, untangle that relationship between sampling and labeling as well as their importance in the AI development process? So you can imagine that you have an Oracle that tells you the correct answer, let's say a business Oracle or a product manager Oracle that for any image, they can define for you the exact correct label for that. And this is the labeler or the labeling part where you have an input and you judge what the correct output should be given this input. Distinct from this is sampling. So choosing which input to add into the dataset for labeling or to label. And these two together, so selecting which images to label and then how to label each image, these are basically the processes that define what your dataset will look like. And then the dataset downstream will define your model. I think people think about labeling perhaps a bit more because sampling, you're kind of defining the weight you give to each example or each category of examples. For example, if you take uniform random sampling, it might seem like a good conservative choice, but if you have a long tail of relatively rare examples, you want these to be more common in your dataset than they are proportionally in the, the real distribution. You want to think about that as well. And labeling wise, the word I, I use usually here is policy. So you have some policy according to which you label. The word ground truth, it's a misnomer because it's not 
like there is an oracle in real world. You have some policy according to which you label. Sometimes you change that policy, and after those changes, you also you need to relabel your, your data set. These are distinct parts of the data set building process, and you actually need to do both well. And now that I think about it, I think the least work I've seen towards managing your policy well. So how do you describe your annotation guide in a way that is like versionable, easy to explain, easy to onboard, new labelers onto you, etc. Possibly uh, scale.ai or uh, other companies may have solved this internally, but I haven't seen a, a product or um, a solution that would address this problem. Yeah, definitely. It's exciting to see, you know, someone who can jump into space to advantage of this uh, huge pain part in your own works. So last year, you wrote this interesting Twitter thread, identifying some of the tools that we can steal from Subway 1.0 if data is in new source code. So, you know, during this transition from Subway 1.0 to Subway 2.0, what are some of the tools that you were most excited about and uh, what tools that you think are overrated? Continuing on my previous rent from like 10 minutes ago, the platforms I think are actually overrated. For some use cases, they might make sense, but in general, they are like a bit too inflexible. The thing that I am excited about, or rather I would love it if it would exist, I've tried to find it, is something like Git for machine learning datasets. Or you could actually use Git itself to version your labels. Basically, like part of the problem of why different tools are not interoperable are that they each build in their own management tool for managing the images, managing the labels. You could imagine a Git-like system or actually storing your labels in Git and every tool is able to use the labels from Git. They would never have to worry about versioning, about users, about blames, about branches or projects, etc. All of this would be handled by Git. So if we had this central, let's say, I would call this a label store and you could use Git for that, I think that could potentially solve all of the problems. Of course, there, then all of the tools will have to be compatible with that as well. This kind of a central, the backbone of the working on data is how we store the data. Something I think I didn't mention it in the thread, but if you think about the physical limit of how quickly could you build a machine learning model, let's say a simple yes-no classification model where it's not like a super difficult task, let's say telling whether there is a coin on an image or not. The physical limit is how quickly can a person judge, if you look at the screen, how quickly can you judge the correct label for that image? And this is probably something like 500 milliseconds. The number of examples you need to train a model that is of sufficient accuracy, like it's a function of the accuracy you want, but the number is, let's say, starts from, let's say, 50. And if you multiply these two numbers, it should take you 10 to 20 seconds to build a machinery model. And in reality, the typical iteration time that I, I've seen is something like a week at the minimum, maybe more. Typically, like, you know, when starting out, it could be a month. And everything about above the 10 or 20 seconds is basically waste, in my opinion. It's bad tools, bad process, bad software, like bad concepts for thinking about this, slow training, etc. So if you had this 10 or 20 second amount of time from like idea to train model, you could run, instead of doing one iteration per week, you could do 100. And we could much more quickly improve our models. And then one, one particular problem with machine learning in terms of like unit economics has been um, the long tail. And you could also solve the long tail better 
if you could do many more iterations uh, on the dataset much more quickly. So that's also something that a quicker loop, thanks to better tooling. I guess it, it's not a specific tool, but it's like a function of your toolkit. It's something I'm looking forward to. Totally makes sense. There's also some extension point, the principle of making ML works for this complicated, like like you mentioned, problem with long-term distribution, I think can be very valuable for any builders or even investors out there to look for. As Brady mentioned throughout our conversation, right now you are out of a steel startup. If you can disclose anything, so what are some of the lessons have you learned so far to find some of the early adopters and move to a worse product market fit? When I started working on my first idea, that was last year, I think June or July. I started out working on or like tinkering with some labeling tool ideas that I had. And that actually in the end convinced me to go full time. I think I was possibly a bit misguided or I guess I was trying to build tooling for AI. But if you think about it, narrow AI, it's not the problem. It's a solution. Like in the most simple sense, it's like it's a tool with which you solve a particular problem, which means that if your goal is to build AI, then it's like saying your goal is, is to build web services. And, you know, like it might be a solution to some problems, but by itself, it is not the problem. So I kind of started with a solution in search of a problem, which I eventually realized and moved on from this. Another thing, and I think this is something I haven't seen talk about much, was most of the progress or significant steps I've been able to take in building my startup have been because I've been able to fix a misunderstanding or something that is wrong about myself. It's a harsh thing to say, but I think about it as there are some things about me personally about my let's say my upbringing my knowledge my work experience the way i react to the world which are actually unproductive are not helping me forward with building my startup and every time i realize that something like this exists i identify one of those and i am able to consciously work through it in not in all cases like get rid of it but just like figure out where it's coming from and, and maybe somehow address it I can make a bigger step on the startup itself. One recent example that was, I think, two days ago or yesterday even, I realized that I had this pretty strong aversion to reaching out to people in order to sell something to them. And, you know, maybe it's really common, but I found that it's really difficult for me to write, even to my acquaintances, people in my network, to offer them something which I think might be valuable to them. And it seems like, you know, like, it's not rational. And that's true. The problem wasn't a rational argument, which was stopping me. It was some sort of aversion inside me, which made me not want to talk to them or not want to reach out to them. I'm still kind of like in the process of figuring out what's going on there. But part of it is I realized that me being in stealth mode is kind of also protecting me somewhat from criticism and from exposing myself to the feedback and other people's opinions about what I'm doing. And for that reason, I'm less likely or less keen to reach out to people and talk about what I'm working on, which is obviously a prerequisite for them to buy. I need to tell them what, I'm, uh, what I want to offer them. So I realized that this is kind of stopping me. And I think that the root cause is something like I have this internal expectation that people and like abstract people somewhere in the world who I don't necessarily even know that I will be mocked or I will be somehow thought less of due to the fact that I switched an idea or I started working on something else or something that might not work out. So basically this abstract critic in my head is stopping me from reaching out and doing this kind of analysis. Like I, after going through this process for like one hour or something, I realized or I found it much easier to reach out to people again. And I found some 
helpful framings for how to think about this in a way that most of these things were basically not real arguments. They were feelings that I was kind of able to reprogram or reframe with a different mindset. Like maybe I now think about it in the way that, okay, like they're saying, I'm not sure if, if it's um, like native Estonian and it might come from some other language, but the dogs may bark, but the caravan will continue, which is a different way of saying like, you know, the critics are not really... They don't have skin in the game. There's a famous speech from Roosevelt, I think, called, or the, the main concept that I think it's famous for is uh, Man in the Arena, uh, which really spoke to me uh, on this particular problem. And through this process of figuring out, like, in what ways am I fucked up? And uh, how, how do I address those? How do I overcome those? I think this has been part of uh, my progress, mostly, when building my own startup. Thanks for being vulnerable and sharing those, as I said, into the struggle that you have to deal with in, in conceptualizing this idea. And I, I think that's definitely an, um, below the live version of many um, entrepreneurs, you know, out there. Just, just curious, like, let's say for other fathers or entrepreneurs or, or people out there who are struggling with, with that same mental and internal critic like that, what advice would you give to them? Like, what is there any books or resources or mentors or, or things like that that you think? They might seek to battle with some of the struggle. The resource that I used was from an organization called CFAR, C-F-A-R. They are at rationality.org. So they run these workshops, which I participated in once. I think I saw a mutual friend between me and you. Maybe you know about them. So they run these workshops. And one part of their program is this workshop called aversion factoring, or in simple words, like figuring out what are the parts of the activity that are averse to you in, a, you know, like the simple algorithm in like, 10 second version is like close your eyes, imagine doing this activity or imagine starting this activity and then write down all of the feelings that come to you that are negative and try to figure out what the reasons are. This is the core of the approach. Uh, I don't really have a, a reference other than maybe you can Google a version factoring and you will find probably some, some blog post or something about it. And then, you know, like applying this common sense, turning your like creativity, turning your focus at some point not only on the business, but also on yourself. Like, how am I stopping my growth? How am I stopping my company from going forward? I think this is a one level up, a meta solution to these sorts of problems. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of that, apply rationality. I, I've been a big fan of the Rational Speaking podcast by Rajula Gala, who is the part of that organization. So yeah, definitely I recommend that for listeners as well. You have worked in various startups that belong to the hashtag Estonian Mafia. Given your insider perspective, what is the secret sauce that makes this company and the broader Estonian startup ecosystem hugely successful? One thing which I think talked about most is, I guess you could say it's like luck or the initial conditions were lucky. So it happened so that the founding engineers of Skype, the, the team was based in Estonia. The Skype original team, I think up to several hundred people was built in Estonia. And once the company exited, you know, many of these people made millions or, or probably tens of millions of euros. These people in turn, many of them started their own companies. Some of them invested in, in other companies. And you had this like second generation of companies. For example, Playtech was, I think, the second unicorn in Estonia. TransferWise, which is rumored to IPO soon. Maybe it's official now, I don't know. TransferWise is like second to third generation. And Pipedrive recently sold for a bit more than a billion, I think. So you have these generations of companies and at every generation, it's like this multiplicative effect that you have 
you know, at first you have like 10 people with skills and money, then you have 100 people with skills and money, and then, you know, the ball keeps rolling and the number of people gets bigger and bigger. This sort of effect, which happened, you know, like I'm sure there was some lucky incident involved in the founding of Skype where like, I have no idea, like, but I imagine it could be something like this, that someone accidentally, you know, may have gotten stuck on a, on a plane or missed a plane or something and then got you talking. Like it could be this sort of luck that initially got Skype to Estonia and then continued to snowball. But there's other factors as well. I think one that comes to mind specifically is Estonia is a really small country. Uh, there's a bit more than a million people and the concentration is, I guess you could say like low compared to like, I don't know, Shanghai or, or Hong Kong or something, but it's a small country. It's a small community. And, you know, there's this theory that anyone in the United States can reach any other person on average on, in six steps of separation. In Estonia, it's probably like one step in the startup community. So if you've worked at some startup in Estonia, you probably know someone who knows like any other person you want to reach, whether that is investors, early employees, executives, etc. So this sort of like small network, tight network and willingness to support each other. So since the network is relatively small, all of the founders uh, kind of like are supportive towards each other. It doesn't seem to me, at least I'm not like super deep into the founder community at, at this time, but it seems to me that this huge competition, two companies doing roughly the same thing, both are big and trying to uh, beat each other. Estonia is too small for that. And people are just like really supportive. So I think that is also part of the success. And it's probably difficult to get to, you know, like Silicon Valley scale with our small scale. But I think Estonia is kind of the world leader in metrics per capita and i think <laughs> startups per capita is something we're really good at yeah totally that cohesiveness that you brought up i think is a very very interesting part of you and very curious to see how that can be maybe replicated in other community as well so finally i believe you also part to individual productivity i found your three back blog series written in estonian back in 2015 on how to increase motivation how to be in spiritual learning how to improve productivity in general my last question is like, what are the top three productivity tips that have been most useful with your personal and professional growth? This has actually changed a lot since I wrote those blog posts. Mm-hmm. I used to think about this in terms of like apps or to-do systems or maybe even habits that I could adopt to gain an edge or maybe hacks, productivity hacks is something that you hear about a lot. But recently, like the thing that has given me the biggest benefit is one, sleeping well and it's surprisingly difficult to do. You can immediately tell if you've been sleeping not that well or not enough. You're much less creative, possibly more angry or more emotional about things that you shouldn't really be about. Sleeping well, and I can refer you to um, Andrew Huberman's uh, podcast. He's a professor, I think, at Stanford, and he has this great podcast about the basically neural process or the, our nervous system and how that interacts with the things we care about every day, sleeping energy levels, productivity, etc. Number two, I would say is I recently rediscovered for myself uh, decaf coffee. And I I had noticed this before as well, that you have this, or at least me personally, I have these two relatively distinct modes of operation. So if I'm on caffeine, I'm kind of like a narrow beam focused and I can execute really well in some direction. And when I'm off caffeine, I run slower in a direction, but I'm much more careful and creative about the direction I'm going in. So I, I've learned to use this. So I have like both decaf and uh, uh, normal beans at home. And based on what I expect to do in the day, I choose 
how much uh, caffeine to take, like zero to, you know, like maybe half the normal dose, 50 milligrams. And this has been really uh, interesting because previously, like at Verify, I used to do like two cups of coffee every day. And what that does do is you can really easily get stuck in an unproductive direction. And then you work in that direction for like two weeks instead of just realizing that maybe I should like step away from it and go somewhere else. And the third thing, it's related to the aversion factoring and the sales like aversion that I mentioned before. When you notice that you're forcing yourself to do something, when you notice that you don't like doing something, you have a bad feeling about something you're about to do or that you're kind of intent to do. That's a signal that either you shouldn't be doing it, perhaps it's like ineffective, unproductive, maybe it's, you know, like moving in the, in the wrong direction, or maybe you should be doing it, but you're like, you have a bad understanding of what should be your motivation structure for doing it. So like the word should even, like it encodes this idea of, I don't want to, but I have to. Uh, that's like what should means. And whenever you notice that kind of thing, it's useful to reflect for a second, why am I doing it? And then if there is no answer coming up, maybe you shouldn't do it. If the answer comes up, you should have like instant motivation or you will have instant motivation because you realize, okay, I'm reading this paper because I want to be able to complete my thesis so I can graduate, so I can finally get to work like and get out of university. This sort of quick chain of thoughts, you know, 10 seconds might be enough to put their everyday work into context and make it much more enjoyable instead of just like slogging through and with putting uh, lots of great things you do daily. And my main productivity tip actually related to that, I try to only do things that I like to do. And, you know, there's like two sides to it. So if I don't like to do it, I'll find a way to like it. The other option is I just don't do it because I find that it is not valuable enough. So this sort of rule of thumb, it's probably difficult. If you take it verbatim, then you might not be able to achieve anything for a short period of time. So take it with caution. Yeah, definitely relevant to my case as well. I think both sleep and caffeine consumption correlate each other because, you know, if you like consume caffeine late at night, it's hard to sleep as well, right? So personally for me, I'm also in the process of identifying the best way in terms of whether to cut out coffee by like 2 p.m., for example. And then start drinking water and tea instead to enhance the, the sleep. That's something it, it's easier said than done because, you know, there's so many factors during your workday and structuring that in a way that makes sense. It's going to take some time. Taivo, at this point of the conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions and then you give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the data science universe whose work you admire. I could only come up with two, so I'll mention two. One is Andrei Karpati, the Tesla director of AI, author of and promoter of the software 2.0 idea. And I think I can't see much from the outside. I think he's built, built an amazing data engine inside of Tesla. And the second one is uh, Mike Bostock, who is one of the key authors of D3, the JavaScript-based data visualization library, just because of the impact it had on my learning in the early stages of when I got into data science. And I think it's changed a lot of visualization on the web for the better. It enables so much exciting work with data visualization. Number two, what is one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate a better data-driven mindset? I'm going to go off the beaten track here. So I'll recommend Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman. It's a biography based on anecdotes of the Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman. And the reason... It is really fact-driven, and you can see how well-grounded in facts and reality uh, Richard Feynman is. And on the other hand, it breaks the stereotype 
uh, he seems a really down-to-earth kind of person, curious and adventurous, but not that a dry kind of, uh, you know, academic that you might expect from someone who is like very insistent on facts and uh, possibly data statistics. Then finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage data practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? There's a million people that can train neural networks. There's only a few that can build good data sets. Focus on data, not models. I think that's a brilliant way to end our conversation. So Taivo, I really enjoyed chatting with you today, learning about your education in Estonia, your venture into working in startups for various Estonian mafia companies, some of the interesting lessons learned from building good data set, crafting the data spec manifesto, building different loops, and uh, the importance of having data offs within the data science products, as well as you know, your various blog posts that emphasizing the importance of the need for high-quality data tools to accelerate the development of AI, as well as some of your stories on working on your steel startups and even individual productivity. So I'll be sure to include everything in the show notes so listeners have a chance to Take a look, read some of your work, or some of your talks, and reach out if they're more interested in this critical moment as we transition to Software 2.0, where there's a lot of uh, uncertainty and, and how we can leverage margins of data in, in the world today. I really enjoy our chat today, so terrible. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks for having me, James. I appreciate you inviting me here. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.